The reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as you're seated, uh, let's pray together. We, we need God's help this morning, as we always do. And uh, I want to invite you to petition him with me before we begin. Father, I come before you and am just so conscious of my weakness, but also conscious of the power of your word. Lord, uh, we are also conscious of the power of your Holy Spirit and the way that you work and it's your good pleasure to work through your word and by your spirit to, to convict our hearts. I mean, here's, here's our request this morning. God, would you convict our hearts? Would you expose our sin? But would you do it not so that we'd feel condemned and empty and rejected, but that we would do it and be drawn to Jesus to receive his forgiveness and his love and his mercy, to receive his righteousness, to be made righteous like him. God, would you do a work this morning? We just ask Would you change us? For those of us that have been struggling in the area of lust for a long time, would you begin to free us this morning and draw us into the righteousness of Christ? It's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. So welcome again. Uh, we're in our, our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in it since September. We took a bit of a break uh, through Christmas, and now we're back in. And in this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous sermons in the Bible, probably the most famous sermon in the Bible, Jesus has been teaching us what it means to follow him as his disciples. He's been teaching us what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be truly human? To have true flourishing and righteous life in relationship with Jesus and relationship with God. He's been teaching us all about these things. He's been going through a number of different points. And the last couple of weeks, he's churned and, and he's really got to the heart and to the, the content of what he's really wanting to drive home in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the way that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets and to bring about the greater righteousness of God in the lives of his people. What does that mean? Well, Jesus has been coming to us talking about the way that, that what God has desired in his law from all of the Bible, from the beginning, all the way up to the arrival of Jesus, what he desires is not just obedience that is external, but obedience that comes from the heart an internal obedience, not just, okay, God, I'll reluctantly follow you and do what you're asking me, but God, I want to do it. I want to obey, not just externally, but deep within And Jesus has been unpacking this greater righteousness by walking through six examples. We're in this section now in chapter 5, verses 21 to 48. And Jesus is giving us six examples of what it looks like to have a greater righteousness that comes from God, that loves God and obeys him inwardly as well as outwardly. 
And the first example was the one that Jonathan walked us through last week, where Jonathan showed us the way that, that God's prohibition about murder wasn't the whole story. It's not just that, but God wants us actually not to live in anger and in conflict in our human relationships, but to love one another deeply from the heart. And this next section, we're going to move on to a different topic. We're going to see Jesus as he explains this greater and internal righteousness by looking at the issues of adultery and sex and lust. So if you were worried this sermon would be boring, uh, be worried no longer. Uh, we are going to jump into it, and I hope I've got your attention. We've got a lot going on this morning, so we're just going to jump right into it. And I only have two points for us. Our first point is adultery and lust. Although it's sneaky because it's kind of two points, but one point. Adultery and lust. And our second point is repentance and faith. Adultery and lust and repentance and faith. So let's look at our first point together and start to unpack this greater righteousness that Jesus is all about. By looking at Matthew 5 verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now for Jesus' first century audience, this was really familiar territory. This wasn't something that they were unfamiliar with. This wasn't a commandment that seemed strange to them and their culture. It's one that they would have embraced and realized. And they knew that, that it was something that had actually been said twice, very specifically in the law that came before in their Jewish scriptures. It's found in both Exodus 20 verse 14 and Deuteronomy 5 verse 18. You shall not commit adultery. It's familiar for them, but, but here's the question. If it's familiar for them, is it familiar to us? Does our culture have the same kind of willing embrace of this prohibition that they did? Does it make the same intuitive sense to them uh, that it does for us or to us as it did for them uh, in those days? I don't think it necessarily does. I mean, we live in a city, don't we, where, um, where freedom of sexual expression is kind of like the one taboo topic. It's like the, the God of our society that we don't question what happens with our desires and how they're exercised. And I think that in a society like this, we often question, well, what's the big deal with adultery anyway? Like, can't, can't people who love one another and who are mature adults realize that sometimes your love leads you here and sometimes it leads you over here and it's okay. We just got to get over it and realize that that's just normal and part of human expression. And we wonder things like, you know, what's the big deal, Jesus? Is there a reason for this command or are you just kind of arbitrarily saying, you know, religious moral things that hamper our behavior? Well, there is a reason. There's a significant reason. There's a significant reason. The reason for the prohibition against adultery here, it goes back to God's purposes for human sexuality that he created for us. I want to show you this by looking back at the first two chapters of the Bible. We look all the way back to the beginning of the Bible where, where God talks about how he created this world and how he designed it for his glory and for our flourishing and relationship with him. And first in Genesis chapter 224, I want to show you this. We read this in the scriptures. God's purpose for marriage and sexuality. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. You see, God created male and female, and he designed them to be joined together in marriage for his purposes. One woman married to, to one man becoming one flesh together according to his purposes. But look second, actually, at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. In that passage, we read this about humankind, about our marital, marital relationships. It says, And God blessed them, the original couple, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, 
and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And, and this verse is really showing us this program for humankind as couples get together and have families and they expand and flourish over the created world, bringing glory to God and becoming the building blocks for healthy societies as children are cared for in committed and faithful relationships between one man and one woman. You see, sex, yes, is made for our enjoyment, but it's also for our bonding and for our unity and for our flourishing in marriage as human beings in this world. And therefore, adultery is wrong. Adultery is wrong, but also other distortions of God's intention for our sexuality. Not just because Jesus likes to arbitrarily like, give us laws and rules and commands. But it's wrong because actually adultery is bad for us. That it, it hurts us. That it hurts the society that we were created to be in. That it goes against God's creational purposes and his designs for us as humankind. As we seek to rebel against him and be satisfied in the moment. Ultimately, that's not good for us. It's not good for our societies, and it's not pleasing to him. But here's the thing. Believe it or not, and that's a lot, right? You can say that. You say, Brent, sure, you're just speaking from scriptures. You know, but what about real life? Believe it or not, even a variety of, of secular sociologists would agree with this. There's a large agreement among sociology, people who study society, that, that adultery, that broken families are terrible for society. Consider this statement in Slate Magazine, written by social scientist W. Bradford Wilcox. She writes this. She says, Boys raised in a single-parent household are more than twice as likely to be incarcerated compared with boys raised in an intact married home, even after controlling for differences in parental income, education, race, and ethnicity. There's a purpose for our sexuality functioning in committed marriages to protect us from this. Or consider the 2015 U.S. Census Bureau's Bureau's, uh, summary statement about income and poverty in the U.S. They say this, single mother families are about five times as likely to experience poverty as married parent families. Or just look at the conclusion from an article from the Journal for Marriage and Family uh, that I found on the National Center for Biotechnology Information. Say, over the past decade, evidence on the benefits of marriage for the well-being of children has continued to mount. Children residing in two biological married families tend to enjoy better outcomes than do their counterparts raised in other family forms. What's interesting about all these articles and a lot of statistics here is they show that those better outcomes apply not just economically, but economically and psychologically and emotionally and developmentally. It's across the board. But here's the thing. I could quote statistics at you, but I think many of you know this intuitively. I think you know it intuitively because statistics state that 42 to 45% of marriages end in divorce. We also know that adultery is one of the number one predictors of divorce within marriage. It's one of the number one predictors that divorce will ultimately happen and those marriages will break up. So that means that for those of us in this room, I think the vast majority of us in this room, we've felt the pain of adultery. We've felt the pain of brokenness in our sexuality uh, against what God's purposes and designs are for us. Even if it was your grandparents who committed adultery on one another, according to statistics, you feel the repercussions today, economically, psychologically, and more. You see, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery for a reason. Says it for a reason. And up to this point, I think the crowds of Jesus' day, they were, they were rah, rah, Jesus. They agreed with him. Yes, Jesus, that makes sense. And for a lot of them, I think, they probably felt self-righteous. They thought, you know, I haven't cheated on my spouse. 
I'm doing pretty good. Jesus is right. I'm doing well. It's all good. But here's the thing. Jesus is not just talking about external actions of obedience to God, is he? He's talking about his greater righteousness. He's driving the issue deeper than the external and into the matters of the heart. And he says this in 5 uh, verse 29. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not just a prohibition for the external don't commit adultery, guys. It's what's happening in your heart. What's going on there? Righteousness needs to come from within. Just stop and think about this for a moment. Lustful intent, that's the word Jesus uses. Lustful intent. How do we think about lustful intent today? There's an old, light-hearted Dean Martin song. It's called Standing on the Corner. I heard it a number of years ago, and it hit me so hard that I couldn't wait to use it as a sermon illustration. I've had to wait two years uh, to, to use it. So, 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 so here I am. Uh, this is a light-hearted song, but it's, it's a song about lust. It's a song about lust, and it's a song about the way that I think we commonly treat as a light matter the issue of lust in our lives. Dean, Wright, Dean Martin, he sings this. He says, standing on the corner, watching all the girls go by. He says, brother, you can't go to jail for what you're thinking or for that woo look in your eye. It's dated, I know, but it's so honest. And in the hashtag, me too age, we know a lot better than to say what Dean Martin said. Right? We don't talk maybe as frankly or we, we don't, at least in public, in the way that he's talking here. But aren't you and I prone to make light of lust in just the same way? Don't we do the same thing? I think it's such a normal part of our society that we hardly even blush at it. Hardly think twice about it. You know, today it's easier than ever for us to lust and to satisfy ever darker human desire at a moment's notice. Whether on your cell phone, on your tablet, on your computer... In private, the statistics surrounding our lust are staggering. In just 2015, in in one single calendar year, 4.3 billion hours of porn were watched on a single website. That's 500,000 years of pornography consumed in one year on one website. It's estimated that 35% of internet downloads are pornographic. That approximately 70% of men and 30% of women regularly use pornography. And in the church, uh, my hope would be that the statistics are less. And they are, I think, slightly less. Less, praise God, for that and the work of his Holy Spirit and believers. Yet in the church, porn use is still high with 41% of boys, ages 13 to 14, admitting to using pornography once a month, at least. And 23% of men, the same. You know, Christianity Today also has a survey for their reader base in case you were, it's just men we're talking about. It's not. And 34% of the women that they studied in their, their reader's base admitted to using pornography as members of the church as well. You see, we've, been, we've become, I think, in our age, experts at indulging our lust. We've become experts at indulging our lust. But like adultery, it's destructive. It's not good for us, and it's not pleasing to God. Just consider this. Pornography use is a key predictor of marital infidelity. 
It contributes to that greater problem of the destruction of societies that we're talking about. Porn replaces love and relationship and self-giving with lust and with abuse. There's a study that was done, uh, and in the cases of and the, the, the pornography that they studied, 88% of what they viewed, of the scenes that they saw, were uh, depictions of aggression or violence. And that aggression and that violence in pornography, it becomes the thing that disciples our society and how to behave sexually. It teaches us how to behave sexually, but it doesn't teach us to love and to give of self. It teaches us to use and to abuse for our own purposes. Porn and lust, they take human beings created for self-giving love and relationship, and they turn human beings to objects from which to extract our selfish desire. And porn, of course, is responsible for a widespread variety of deep emotional wounds in marriages, as one partner inevitably will feel judged and unable to fulfill the expectations and the hopes of their other partner. And the great irony is that it's widely acknowledged, and a lot of studies have been shown uh, to, to back this up, that porn actually damages one's ability to perform sexually. And it damages your ability to perform sexually and normally in real relationships. But there's more here because, let's not be naive, the porn industry has this horrifically dark underbelly. It's rife with suffering and pain and brokenness. Porn performers themselves, they're consistently... Abused and dehumanized. So if you buy ethical foods and clothing, but take part in pornography, you need to know that that's just rife hypocrisy. If you're concerned that the people who make your clothes are treated well, but you take part in pornography, you're talking about taking part in an industry that has systematic abuse of people at its core. The reality is that our lust isn't neutral. Our lust is destructive. It's really destructive. But here's the thing. Even for those who don't struggle with pornography, not all of us do. Even for us who don't struggle with pornography, our lust is destructive too. And Jesus doesn't give us any slack. He doesn't let us off uh, the hook just for having lust in a general sense. Whether it's for the person in the gym next to you, or the person on the bus or on the street, or in the movie you're watching, or in the book you're reading, or maybe for somebody even in this room. Lust is harmful and sinful and shameful. And it's a deceptive twisting of what God's good intentions are for our sexuality as humankind and for our flourishing. And here's the thing, because God is good and because he loves us, because he loves his creation, he won't let that sin go unpunished. D. Martin said, your lust won't send you to prison, but Jesus says it can send you to hell. Matthew 5, 28 and 29. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus' words level us. All of us. He teaches about greater righteousness. We aren't left feeling cheerful. Like we've made it. The thing is, my sexuality is broken. It's marred. And so is yours. We're all broken. 
But there's hope because Jesus' penetrating words about our brokenness, they're meant to lead us to him. They're meant to lead us to him in repentance to receive his grace and his forgiveness. He stands with open arms saying, I love you. I receive you. I can forgive you and I can change you and I can fulfill in you the greater righteousness that I came for. Just come to me. Come to me. Let's look at our second point, repentance and faith, and think about what this looks like. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to repentance, I've actually struggled in my life to repent in the way that I should. Maybe you're the same way. Maybe there's, there's lots of times you feel poorly and badly for a certain action. You do a little bit of, of small-level confession a little, in a little way. You know, I'm a little bit sorry, Jesus. I'm a little bit feeling bad, and I'll make a little change. Or maybe it's just that... that in my life, this is my testimony in my life, and maybe you're like me, that you repent of the external manifestation of lust. Something obvious happened, and it's really, you know, okay, that thing happened again in my life, and, and Jesus, I'm sorry for that. And you repent of the external thing, but you don't repent of the internal desire, of the way that you've, you've taken lust and you've nurtured and cherished it and protected it in the depth of your heart and loved it. According to Jesus that's not repentance. According to Jesus, repentance is a radical turning away from sin from the heart. Just look at verses 29 to 30. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. Or verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus' language is shocking. It is shocking for us. He's saying, if you're using your eyes for lustful purposes, go down to Shopper's Drug Mart. Pick up some rubbing alcohol. Grab a pair of tongs and go to wherever you buy scalpels and look in the mirror and get to work. Like, it's horrific. The language is meant to make us deeply uncomfortable. His language is... Is strong. He says, that's better than losing your soul in hell. He says, your lust has your heart and your soul trapped in rebellion against God. And Jesus said, it's worth whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to repent and to turn away from that sin in order to be found in his life. Whatever it takes to turn from it, from the heart. You see, Jesus knows you. He knows me. He knows that that lust isn't something that can be toyed with. You don't take it into your lap and not get burned by it. You can't control it. It's too powerful. He knows the human brain. He knows the pleasurable neurochemical pathways that are formed in us because of sexual experience. He made them. He made them. He designed them for bonding couples together in marriage. For creating these healthy places where children will be nurtured and cherished and societies would grow and be formed and righteousness would increase. But he knows too that when we distort our sexuality lustfully, that those same chemical processes in our brains, they trap us physically in behaviors of pattern that are terrible for us, that hurt us, that are against his good purposes. And that's only talking about the physical component to lust. Because isn't there a spiritual component as well? There is. There is. Lust 
traps us in enslavement to sin outside of relationship with God. Slavery to sin, and it's not a neutral slavery to sin, it's slavery to sin under the authority and the control of the enemy of God, whose name in the Bible is Satan. There's a deep spiritual dynamic at play here too. The bottom, the bottom line is that lust is not to be trifled with. You can't control it. And like the grave, it's always, always, always asking for more and will never be satisfied. Jackie Hill Perry, she's a, a gifted American, uh, African-American writer and speaker. She's, she's wonderful. She's wrote an incredible book I'd recommend to all of you called uh, Gay Girl, Good God. And in that book, she writes this about sin and lust. Just sin, when in the body, cannot stay put. It's not a guest that stays in one room, making sure not to disturb the others. It is a tenant that lives in everything and goes everywhere. It can bleed into every part, choking out anything holy. Jesus knows all of this. Jesus knows this. And as a result, Jesus, in his sermon, he doesn't speak very positively about half measures to put sin to death. He's radical. He says, cut off the hand and gouge out the eye. It is worth it to turn your back on sin and turn towards me. But here's the question for us. I mean, it's it's metaphorical, at least it seems like it is. So what on earth does gouging out eyes and cutting off hands look like in real life? I mean, how does that, that come down to us? Like, how can we, we think about that today? Well, I have three examples for you of what it looks like in real life. There's so many examples of this, but here's three from uh, situations in my life and a couple of good friends of mine. So number one, I have a good friend I met back in seminary, and he'd sunk himself really, really deep in pornography and lust. And when I met him, he was just on the cusp of just feeling convicted by it and wanted to take radical steps. So what he did was that he got rid of his smartphone. He ordered, tried to find a place online where you could actually order a decent flip phone again and make sure he didn't have an internet connection. He started using it, putting up with all of its inconveniences and struggles in order to, to put some distance between himself and his lust. But he didn't just do that. He got rid of all of the electronics in his house that had access to the internet. So he's in seminary. This creates some logistical challenges. This is a guy who did his entire seminary degree uh, working at the computer, which was right in front of the circulation desk in the library. Like everybody knew this was so-and-so's computer. And they knew, and his honesty, like he, he talked about, it, like this, this, this is why I'm here, to be seen, to keep anything private in my life that would keep a hold on me from having a hold on me. I got to know this guy pretty well, became quite good friends and as I walked with him through the stage of his life, it was awesome to see the way that God honored his radical efforts to put his sin to death. His marriage flourished. His faith grew. And his intimacy with Jesus increased as he learned to rejoice in his love in greater ways. There's another example. Second one, it's pretty similar. There's another friend of mine earlier in my life, but before seminary. And he was struggling in much the same way, uh, in a deep way with pornography and, and lust. He was an IT professional, so his whole life revolved around computers. So he's like, how do, how do I do this? <laughs> my whole life is this, and I'm struggling here. How do I separate myself from that? You know what he did? He changed careers. He changed careers. He moved cities. He joined a new community with a new church that preached a clearer gospel. In obedience to this text, 
because he wanted more of Jesus. He wanted more of Jesus. He didn't want to be controlled by his sin. He wanted more of Christ. He wanted to know his love. He was so willing to be changed by this passage. You know, Jesus' words say, it's better to take a part of your body and destroy it. That's a literal Greek word. And to be destroyed in hell. Jesus doesn't just say this once either. Look at it again in 529 and 30. He says it twice. It is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And again, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He's making a point, a strong point, that we are in danger of missing, I think. Third example. For me, in my life, cutting off the hand and gouging out the eye looked like me, 22 years old, newly married and struggling with pornography. It looked like me coming before the elders of my church. I went and stepped before them. It was a small church. I'd, I'd grown up in this church. The elders were my, my dad, my father-in-law, and then a couple men in their church who'd raised their children next to me. See, I wanted righteousness. I wanted Jesus. Jesus was working on me by his Holy Spirit to cause me to hate my sin. I hated it. I didn't know how to be free of it. So I I confessed in about the most awkward place I could think of, (laughs) with about the most spiritual accountability I could find. And that confession, it felt like death. Death to my pride. Death to my honor. I stood before those men, a sinner, confessing specific and concrete sins with no place to hide but the gospel of Jesus Christ to cover me. Jesus, uh, sorry, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, Life Together, he writes this about confession. He says this, Confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It is a dreadful blow to pride. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. I have a long way to go to kill all the remaining lusts in my heart. I know it's something that I, like you, will struggle with until Jesus takes me home and says, you are free when I'm raised with him to be free completely from my sin. But praise God, he used confession, that instance of cutting off the hand to break the power of pornography in my life. Something that he's been granting increasing freedom in my life for over the last 10 years something I haven't pursued in a very long time, and it's because of his grace to me in leading me in repentance. Here's the reality. Cutting off hands and gouging out eyes to radical and specific and public confession of sin, it does feel like death. That's why we don't want to do it. That's why only the power of the Holy Spirit leading us will cause us to be willing to do it. And in a sense, it is death. In a sense, it is death. It's a participation in the death of Jesus. Dying to yourself and to your pride. Dying to the way that you want to be valued and seen and appreciated in the community. As your sin is laid bare before others. It's dying dying to the way that your wants and desires exist to be satisfied. It's dying in order to live the life of Jesus. 
that he's offered you. But hear this. If you're thinking about radical confession, repentance as some noble journey that you do by yourself, you're wrong. Jesus has gone before you. Jesus has gone before you. He went ahead of you. He isn't asking you to do anything that he hasn't already done because putting sin to death literally cost Jesus his life. In order to break the power of sin in your life, Jesus allowed himself to be betrayed by his close friends. In order to break the power of sin in your life, Jesus subjected himself to a corrupt trial. He let his enemies torture him and he willingly gave himself to be crucified. And he spilled his blood out on a dusty Judean hillside in order to grant you his life. 1 Peter chapter 2.24 say this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The grace of God offered to us the death of Christ. You see, there's no triumphalistic, easy approach to growing in holiness in the Christian life. There's no easy way. You don't get to grow in Jesus the easy way. Nobody does. It requires dying with Jesus. It requires cutting off hands and gouging out eyes. It requires dying to yourself and the sin that you want to hang on to so that you can be upheld in Jesus' life instead. So let me challenge you. Let me challenge you. If you're living in unconfessed sin right now, won't you confess it? I'd love to talk with you. Jonathan would love to talk to you. Matt would love to talk to you. Doug would love to talk to you. Your community group leaders would love to talk to you. Speak to a trusted Christian brother or a Christian sister. Confess openly and turn to Jesus for the forgiveness that only he can offer. I'm wondering right now, what's the one thing that the Holy Spirit is asking you to do right now? This requires radical action. What's the Holy Spirit saying to your heart? What is it that he's saying, you need to stop this? You need to turn away from this. You need to cut off this or gouge out that. What is it? Obey him. Listen to him. Take a step of obedience and faith. Confession is so powerful. Keeping your sin secret is so deadly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, sin demands to have a man by himself. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. Won't you hear this word and confess and cut off and walk in the light to be healed by Jesus? His words are like a scalpel, aren't they? And they penetrate us really deep. There is, there is pain in these words as we sit under them. They cut us to the core. I want you to know it's painful, but it's for a purpose. It's meant to drive you to Jesus. 
It's meant to drive you to Jesus in hope and in faith. Because only Jesus can change you. He stands as the one who's saying these things and talking with a greater righteousness with his arms open saying, come to me. Come to me. Let me do this in you. I want to work in you. Repent of your sin and come to me for the righteousness that only I can bring you. He can empower us. How? How does he do it? Well, he does it by slowly and surely correcting the orientation of our hearts. You see, the problem is this. We lust because we love the wrong thing. We lust because we love the wrong thing. We love the gifts that God has given us more than the giver. We love the gifts of marriage and of sex and of intimacy and relationships and all kinds of different permutations. We love those things more than him. And it leads us to lust in a variety of ways. We elevate these things. We make them God instead of Jesus. But here's the good news. Jesus comes to sinners like you and I, broken, hurting, idolatrous, and he's full of mercy and grace. He comes to fulfill the law in us by taking our broken and disordered loves and putting God again at the center. By causing us to love him, to see him high and exalted and to adore and to worship him. To love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind so that the inward desires start to line up with the actions. He does it to bring us righteousness and bring us into relationship with God. The thing is, all of those idols will never satisfy us anyway. Whatever idol you have in Jesus' place, it's only going to lead you into more pain, into more hurt, into more disappointment. But in every situation you're in, whatever idol it is that you're tempted to worship, Jesus stands before you and he offers you something so much better. Not external perfection, not change overnight, and it's gone but a day-by-day transformation of your heart as you love him more and more and more and learn to hate your sin more and more and more as he draws you more and more and more into his holiness and his love and his forgiveness and his grace. He stands on the mountain. He invites us into his greater righteousness. He says, I am the bread of life. John six thirty five. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Look, I want to show you something. One of the reasons marriage or sex or intimacy or any of things related to those things, the reason they make such a terrible God is that even the best sex and the most godly marriage is reduced in the Bible to a mere shadow of something far better. Do you know that? Just a shadow of something that's so much better. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 32 say this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Biblical marriage is what he's talking about. But as he talks about biblical marriage, look what he says. This mystery is profound. But I'm not really talking about marriage at all. Because I am saying that it refers, it promises, it hopes, it looks forward to Christ and the church. 
If you're single here this morning and you've idol, uh, idolized and idealized marriage in any way, be encouraged and hear this. You're not made just for marriage. You're made for Jesus. Hear this. Throughout the Bible, the metaphor that comes closest to describing the joy of our eternity with Christ, it's this word called consummation. And whatever earthly experience we may or may not have with sex and intimacy and relationship in this life, it's not going to compare in the slightest to the day when we are brought home and live forever in the presence of Jesus. That's the thing he's drawing us towards, all of us, married or single. And he calls us to worship him, to put our idols to death, to come to him for the righteousness he offers us. Look forward to the day when his love washes over us and nothing and no one and no sin will ever get between you and the God that you were made for ever again. Don't worship sex. Worship Jesus. Repent deeply and go to him to redeem you and to transform you from the inside out. As we conclude, I just want to say this. I think there's a way of of hearing a sermon like this one and still just being filled with grief and hurt and regret. I know there are people in this room who have committed adultery, who have lived deeply in indulging their lust, who have done all kinds of things that cause them to feel the pain and the shame of their actions. If you're in a place right this moment where where you feel burdened by those things, you feel, I'm worthless. I'm just shame. There's no good in me. I want you to know that in the gospel, none of that is true. That in the gospel, there is a word of grace and of love and hope for you. You see, Jesus doesn't stand on the mountain and offer high fives, high fives to all the church members that go by that haven't committed adultery. That's not what he's doing. He stands on the mountain and he offers all of us redemption because there's nobody in this room who isn't in desperate need of it as a sinner who needs the grace and the love of Jesus that only he can give. There's no exceptions. And here's the amazing part. No matter who you are and no matter what you've done, Jesus doesn't offer you salvation in the abstract, some airy-fairy, ethereal thing far away. He offers redemption and grace to you concretely and specifically. He offers you wholeness and redemption for your body. All of it. For your imagination. For your psyche. You see, Jesus isn't ashamed of any of you that he has made. He's not ashamed of it. And no matter what you've done, he welcomes you and he passionately loves you and receives you with open arms to redeem you, to transform you, to cover you in his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. He's faithful. He's faithful. So in your sexual brokenness, This morning, let me invite you. Won't you come to Jesus? Won't you turn to him in repentance for the sin that you're in right now? Won't you come to him for the grace that only he can offer you? He longs to make you righteous as he is righteous and he is able. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we're broken. We're just broken. 
There's nobody in this room who doesn't get a pass, who gets a pass. There's nobody in this room who escapes somehow the words of Jesus. He lays us bare before you. But God, would, would you take the conviction we feel and would you, would you turn it to life as you run to Jesus to see him and his glory and his beauty and his love and to have him change us from deep within? Oh, we long for it. We ask for it. Would you change Christ City Church Kitsilano because of the words of Jesus spoken 2,000 years ago in the Sermon on the Mount? In his precious name we pray. Amen.